Section nine of Members of the Family by Owen Wister. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter seven Where It Was Part one When Scipio had brought to an end the edifying anecdote, he lay in his hospital bed, silent and a little tired after so sustained a recital. Why not write, I inquired, a book and call it tales from my past. He looked at me suspiciously, but suspicion melted into what immediately sparkled in the tones of his reply. In spite of my ancestors, I don't know French. For an instant I was stupid. I have many such instants. You've often told me, he had to explain, that in France you can print anything. Oh, well, I laughed, quite a number of yours are harmless enough, even for our magazines. This one, for instance. But his thoughts had gone on. He was gazing through the open window with a craving eye. All out of doors was his true home, his hearth and bed, his natural workshop and playground. Indoors had been merely his occasional resort a place where a man went for a brief visit when he felt like spending his money. "'I'm going to get well,' he said, still watching the far-off golden hills. "'I am getting well. And once I'm on my legs, I'll start making a lot more past.' "'Do!' I exclaimed. "'Do! It isn't everybody who can, even when they try.' He grunted. "'Ah! I ain't never tried much. Didn't have to.' Things just kind of seem to happen when I'm around. Did you lie just now? I asked. Lie? When? Didn't you fix up the ending? Fix up nothing. That's what them two old junipers actually did. You'll remember, I persisted, you forbade me the other day to monkey with the facts when I told you I didn't like the ending of Bellyful's adventure in Repose Valley. Sure, us Western men don't care about fixed-up things when we know how things are, when we've been the things ourselves. And will you tell me, Scipio grew earnest, what's the point of a book lying about life the way more'n half of em do, the way I wouldn't let ya do about bellyful? Oh, our sincere and pious public is determined that virtue shall triumph in print anyhow, and that nothing naked is true until draped. Not me. I don't want any of them bib and tucker and safety-pin stories they hand you out. What made you think I'd lied? Well, it seemed too good, too virtuous, too right. He grinned, and I perceived this to be at my expense. He had caught me taking divergent postures toward life and toward print. I surrender, I laughed. I'm a liar, too. His grin now faded. Now and then, you know, people do act decent. I've met several besides them two old men, even along the Rio Grande. Why, I've acted decent myself at times. He seemed to review his recent anecdote. The point was, he said next, they always thought they were madder than they were. Now, I'm just the other way. I'm that good-natured that I'm frequently madder than I feel, and it's the other man finds that out. 
"Get out of here," said the post doctor, entering. "Look at your victim's eyes." So I went out, ashamed of myself at having led poor Scipio to talk so much. I needn't change a syllable of as many as I recollect in his anecdote. His impression of the Thaumet Valley as it had been in those earlier days, before apples, before the great northern, before anything, shall not be fixed up by me. I'd been seein' a lot of country, clear up from Mazatlan to the Big Bend, driftin' through old Mexico and California and Oregon, and over for a little while to Boise, and up through the Palouse, where the dust puffed up from the plows and trailed like a freight-train smoke does on the southern Pacific for a half-hour after she's went by. And I'd crossed the god-awful Big Bend, but I'll skip that, and I'd crossed the stinkin' vicious Columbia on a chain ferry, but I'll skip that. And I was kind of tired. Didn't want no mines, either. There was mines up there and folks crowdin' to em, thick from everywheres. But I was tired. Figured I'd put in the balance of the fall, and the winter too, maybe, in some pleasant place, if they could direct me to such a thing. So they told me there was women, wives, I mean, and children and homes and neighbors over on the Thaumet. So I headed for there. Went in with a siwash over the Chillowisp Trail. Him and me couldn't talk much, but we could nod and point and grunt when his English and my Chinook gave out. He carried the mail in once a week, except when the snow wouldn't let him. That proved to be often. Oh, but I liked the Thalmet Valley's looks that first sight, and it stayed pleasant to me. Why did I leave it? Don't know. Just got curious to see some more country. There wasn't any homes to see as the engine and me rode down the hill, but trees that could shade you, and grass a horse could eat, and water not running like it wanted to kill you, but friendly water and the mountains all around was pleasant too timber on em snow not on em yet except a dozen or so high up far back patches lying around white like wash day so we rode along up the valley and camped and next day struck a cabin and corral and haystacks sure enough married man with wife and kids kids had regular texas colored hair but the most homes was farther up the river, they said, near the forks and store. And so I went along with the Siwash, who was bound for the store with his mail sack. The store was the post office, of course. Beekman was its name. We passed by a tent side of the road, and voices was screechin' inside the tent, and the Siwash, he started to laugh. So I asked him what he knowed about it. Let me see, what did he say? I don't have use any more for the Chinook I learned up there. Oh, yes, he said, Klaska Tennisman, Klaska Hyas Pilton. So I didn't know what it, that meant, and there wasn't much good mentioning this to him. But I didn't have to, for they came a-rushin' out of the tent, no hats on. How does a coyote walk? screeched out the littlest one aimin' his finger at me. Well, I felt huffy. Never saw him before, or his partner, either. Didn't catch the joke. 
but he wasn't joking. The big one arrives, and he yells, Don't he walk separate? He walks together, don't he? yells the little one. Little one had scrambled hair, white, and it hadn't been cut lately. Big partner had left his hair behind him somewheres along life's journey. They was glaring up at me for an answer. So I said, uh, Tell me what you mean. And so they did. They was trappers. One claimed you could always tell a coyote's tracks by the way he put his right foot and his left foot down in different places, so you could tell he was a four-footed animal. And the other, he said, that was the way the bobcat and the link and the mountain lion walked. And then the first one, he yelled out that they struck one foot right in the other foot's track, so it looked like a two-footed animal had been walking there. That's all easy, I said, for I've trapped some myself. So I set em straight as to the facts. Thing was, they quieted down right off and took my say-so. But that was their way, I found. Get up a regular state of things that would mean trouble, you'd suppose, and drop it as if nobody had said a word. Come and finish dinner, says the little one to the big one. Dinner, says the big one. Quit your dining. You've eat enough to wake the dead. So they starts back to their tent like twins. I expect they were sixty, or seventy, or eighty. I don't know how long they'd lasted in this world, and one had boots and the other had his feet tied in gunny sack, and both looked like two bits worth of God help us. But they didn't get to their tent that time. Down the road comes a nice-looking girl on a calico horse with one blue eye, the horse had, and the little one, he sees her, and he whirls around and aims his finger at her, same as he done to me. No, you don't, says he, loud up in the air. I've told you I won't. I had no intention of speaking about it again, says she, rather quiet, but smiling. But when you find that there's no coal really there, well, what do you think? It set em wild. Both of em went plumb wild. I couldn't hear for a while what the trouble was, because they scrambled their words just like the little one's hair, talking to the girl and me and the siwash and each other. But the siwash, he gave another laugh and rode away. He had his mail. I stayed. I hadn't got used to him yet. Thought maybe she'd better have a man around. But they was absolutely harmless. And then I began to understand. The girl, she sat there indulging em, told em she wasn't going to worry em about it any more. They told her there was coal there, and they was going to supply the whole valley, and it was better than a gold mine. She might just as well have worried em instead of sitting so peaceful on the calico horse, because they would never have noticed any worrying she could do. They was that busy with the worry they were keeping up all by themselves. She was a schoolteacher, and up to now she'd kept school in a tent. But the valley was going to build a schoolhouse, and the best location for it happened to be on some land they'd filed on. Any other place would be too far for somebody's kids, or for everybody's, or else hadn't water convenient. But it seemed they wouldn't hear of it. I suppose whoever put it to em first had put it wrong, and now all you had to do was say schoolhouse in their hearing, and have a circus prompt. Mr. Edmund, says she to me, 
says that if their idea of other minerals is like their idea of coal, it's no wonder they have found trapping more profitable. But no one can persuade them, and it's truly a pity about the schoolhouse. Mr. Edmund kept the store at Beekman. If it's not coal, says I, what is it? Oh, slate or graphite or something, and just a tiny ledge and too far from transportation. Well, then, it don't burn. You can't reason with them, she says. And she smiles down at them to quarrel and fussin' old men. It would have brought me to reason, her smile would, but she never gave it to me. Yes, she indulged em. The valley indulged em right along. They was so old and so harmless. Cultus Jake and Frisco Baldy was their names, all the names I ever heard for em, and they'd been most everywheres before other people had. Been across the isthmus and round the horn, they claimed. Not together, you know, but they had met when they was young. Their trails had crossed somewheres in Sonora. Then they'd met again on the Santa Fe Trail when they was still young, and so now and then they'd keep a meetin' and a growin' less young. Been through the gold excitement of forty-nine, drifted up to Portland, got separated at Klamath about the time of the Modoc War, didn't see each other again till both come face to face over in Okanagan country, and then they was old. They remembered former days, and it tied em together. They was going to Africa next time they felt like they needed a change of air. Cultus Jake's hair was all the moss he'd ever gathered, and Frisco Baldy he seemed to have gathered nothing whatever. But they packed around a big harvest of years, no one ever knowed the sum of it. Once in a while they would speak of something they had done together long ago. Then you knew the silent tie between them. I don't wish to live that long and have to look backward when I want to see anything of promise. It's awful when everybody has to indulge you. Time to quit, then. But you needn't to pity Cultus Jake and Frisco Baldy, for they was just as set and cheerful about going to Africa as young rich folks talkin' over what waterin' place they'll visit next summer. Liveliest old junipers that ever I see. Cultus, you know, is Chinook, and it's used for most anything that don't amount to nothin'. And while we're on Chinook, here's something funny. Potlatch means a gift. Now, you'd suppose Cultus Potlatch would be a poor gift counterfeit dollar or a dozen rotten eggs, for instance. Well, you're wrong. You give a man a bridle or a hindquarter of venison or anything you choose and say nothing when you give it. That's just a plain common potlatch, and it means he's expected by all the rules to give you something pretty soon, something as good as your bridle or your deer. But you say cultus potlatch to him and then he'll be genuinely grateful, for that means you're just making him a real present out of the warmness of your heart, and don't expect him to come back at you with a huckleberry for your persimmon. Why, when a siwash, the custom came from them, gave me something in silence, it used to worry me most to death. What the mail carrier said to me the first day, when the two old men was screechin' inside their tent, was that they were children and fools. But he was an Injun, and did not have indulgent feelings. 
I saw more of 'em, and didn't mind 'em. I fell into a job at the Forks. Mr. Edmund wanted somebody else in the store, and I could write a plain hand and add figures fairly correct. He was kind of mad about the schoolhouse, having the interests of the valley at heart, and he used to watch the days getting shorter. Mr. Edmund had everything at heart, too much at heart, other folks' troubles as well as his own. He would lecture me about them in his deep-down voice. Schools wouldn't do in a tent after snow came, and he saw that this would come down to having school in his own cabin if the children was to get any teaching at all. He was the only one that didn't leave him alone about their coal mine. Offered to buy it off him onced, and they screeched for ten minutes, threatened to write to Washington and have him removed for taking advantage of his office. "'Why, you don't know where Washington is,' says he, with his voice down in the cellar. "'Washington, D.C.?' screeches Cultus Jake. "'I don't know. I've been there.' "'Washington, D.C.' repeats Edmund, slow, like fate a-comin'. "'You don't know where it is. That was Edmund all over, his way a-jokin'. "'It's in Maryland,' says Frisco Baldy. "'Virginia, you singed porcupine!' yells Coltus Jake. "'Don't I tell you I've been there?' And I seen they both meant it. And I seen this really grieved Edmund instead of pleasing him. He took it to heart. Well, sir, I just went across the store and lay down on the flour sacks. Kicked up my heels. Guess I made more noise than the old men did. After a minute I lifted up to see what Edmund was doing and he'd pushed his spectacles up high on his forehead and was looking at the two scrappin' about Washington, D.C., out of his awful solemn eyes. So I laid down again flat. If Edmund had talked, I couldn't a heard him, but as a matter of fact he just let him go it alone, and they, like they pretty much always done, got switched off onto something else. This time it was the traps. There was some number fours hanging there, and they both happened to agree it was number fours they would take when they started into the mountains to trap for the winter. So traps made him forget about Washington, D.C., and it had made him forget about exposing Edmund, which had made him forget the coal mine and the schoolhouse, and so they departed, entirely peaceful, out of the store and over the thomont to their tent which they had moved up to the forks. Then I looks up from the sacks again. There stands Edmund behind his desk, same as ever, spectacles away up on his forehead, only now his solemn eyes was fixed on me. And I looks at him, not knowing what on earth he's going to say, or whether he's mad or ain't mad, for you couldn't often tell from his face. For a young man, and he was young, he was a lot growed up, I expect he knew sorrow early. Both of us was quite silent. I didn't know they didn't know, says Edmund, like he was breaking the news of a death to you. And I lays right down again on the sacks. Good Lord, says Edmund, what ignorance! The capital of their country! But I could only fight for my breath and cry and cry. Next time I could see anything, there was Edmund sitting on the counter close alongside of me, legs dangling against the sacks. 
but that time when i looked at him he laughed laughed all through fit to kill himself same as i'd been doin and it was at himself you know as well as at the whole thing he included himself in the show you're quite right says he that was what made you love edmund when a thing like washington d c came up he'd most always get it wrong first see the bad side of it too big and the good side too small he had a heap of misplaced seriousness in his system to conquer but he'd sure conquer it every time if he gave him time it took me the whole first week i worked for him in the store to find this out edmund was the squarest man i have ever known too square and about the finest he was from an eastern college and entirely wasted on the thomond valley where nobody but him had any education or understood honesty as he understood it but they're obstacles to the public good here all the same said he next and i had to think back before i saw he meant the old men was obstructin the schoolhouse and thereby withholdin light from the young hope of the great empire of the northwest he came back to it too several days after that while the school-teacher was orderin slate pencils oh leave them alone says she mr edmund you'll just make em worse but he was in for an argument he settled those eyes of his on her with his regular may god have mercy on your soul expression and he told her she'd ought to know better but she didn't mind him any more'n i did she liked him you know as well as i do says he that children should be an improvement on their parents especially when those parents come from texas texas is a large place he goes on and i am willing to believe that it contains thousands of enlightened and refined persons but they don't come here if your scholars don't learn to read and write where's any progress to come from well mr edmund says she all i know is that you will never help me or the schoolhouse or progress by calling cultus jake and frisco baldy a pair of inspected and condemned mules to their faces i didn't know he called em that must have been outside the store somewheres edmund could turn his tongue wrong side out when he felt like it well that's what they are says he laughing at his own words which he had forgotten but as for this valley it was inhabited by better citizens when the wild animals lived here i prefer a black-tailed deer to a texan don't waste your money on those chocolates miss carey why what's wrong with them says she with the box in her hand there's no chocolate in em says edmund the wholesale house cheated me i'd send em back but i'd sold too much before i found out this candy here says he showing her some more seems to be what it claims to be and then while she seemed to hesitate over the chocolates what do you suppose he does takes the box sudden out of her hand walks out to the river bank and throws the whole outfit plop into the water ah isn't that just like him says she to me very quiet while he was out on the bank and it was yes edmund is the only fool i ever loved she kept staring out at him and in a minute we heard the noise of a boat being rowed across the thomond edmund he stands watchin whoever it was below 
Next minute up the bank comes Cultus Jake. No use your diving for that candy, says Edmund. It's all melted by now. But Jake didn't know about the candy, and he had something on his mind. His old innocent blue eyes was troubled. Decided where uh, Washington, D.C. is, says Edmund, walking ahead of him into the store. But that didn't faze Jake. He'd come to say something. I thought Washington, D.C. was a thing of the past. As a matter of fact, it hadn't scarcely begun. It was biding its time for all of us, though none of us could ever suspect that. Well, where's your partner this afternoon? says Edmund. Cultus Jake, he walks around the store blinking at the various goods, and he touches a trap here and a blanket there, and after a while he answers, Oh, he's over to Pipestone Canyon, and he walks around and touches some more goods. Figure you'll get into the mountains this season, says Edmund. Yes, says Jakes. Next week. Then he walks up close to Edmund. Baldy's over to Pipestone Canyon, says he. We're going to start next week. Don't want the snow to get ahead of us. Mink and Martin reported plentiful up Robinson Creek. One man seen a silver-gray fox. Guess we'll do pretty well this winter. Live in Robinson Cabin. It ain't fallen down like they claimed. And he took another turn around by the door. Well, all this wasn't much to tell people. We knowed all that ourselves. But Jake just then made up his mind quick to say what he'd come to say. Don't you josh, Baldy, says he, coming back close up to Edmund. Don't you do it any more. I don't mind joshing. But Baldy, he's old and out he goes. He went down the bank, and next you could hear the knocking of his oars as he rowed himself back over the thomont to their tent. Miss Carey, she looked at the door where he'd gone out, smiling very pretty. It takes a woman to understand them feelings men has, but conceals. Well, I must be getting home for supper, says she. She boarded a little ways up the North Fork with some folks that had quite a family. But when she's outside, just startin' to untie her horse, why, here comes Frisco Baldy, says she, and waits for him. Frisco Baldy was comin', sure enough, ridin' up the river quite slow, and lookin' across at where their tent was in the flatland this side of the blacksmith's cabin. Then we knowed Jake had spied him, and that was what made him speak out so quick. Baldy, he arrives and gets down. Been over to Pipestone Canyon, says he. We'll be startin' for the Robinson cabin next week, I guess. Snow's not meltin' on the mountaintops any more. She's liable to come down here for keeps any day. Well, we'll be needin' a lot of truck off you. Beans and pork and coffee and stuff in general. Me and Jake'll be over to see you about it. Guess you'll have to let us pay you in furs when we come out in the spring. Old man Paragon's seen a silver-gray fox. Say, and Baldy walks close up to Edmund, don't you josh, Jake, he's old. And out he goes. I looks at Miss Carey, just in time to catch her whipping her handkerchief away from her eye. Well, begins Edmund, but she bursts right out on him, don't you say anything, don't say a thing, she cries. They're just two poor, quaint, dear, helpless old waifs. 
Oh, she looked at Edmund, perfectly ragin'. I didn't know what Edmund would do about that. He had an awful quick temper. But he gives a smile, pretty near as lovely as Hearn had been, and his solemn brown eyes merely looked kind of surprised. Why, says he, I was going to say I would grub-stake em for nothing. They needn't give me any furs. It pulled her right up short, and I don't know what she would have said, for there was Frisco Baldy on the bank, hollerin' and throwin' his arms up and down. I run out. I thought somebody was in trouble. Just in the bend there, below where the North Fork comes in, there's a big deep hole. Well, nobody was in no trouble. Jake was rowin' himself over to our side again, and Baldy appeared not to want him over on our side. So he kept a bellerin' and a throwin' his arms, and Jake he came along over, not mindin' about Baldy on the bank. He landed and clum up the bank right past Baldy, and Baldy he yells out, "'Didn't you see me tellin' you to stay over there?' "'Yes, I seen you, and I come,' says Jake, not yellin', but in his natural voice, and he starts past him. "'Didn't you see I've got the horse and can cross at the ford without you?' That starts Jake, and he yells back, "'I didn't come for you. I came for a box of matches, you ballin' bobcat.' So there they was at it again, scrappin' about nothin' at all. And Jake, he bought his matches, mad, and cleared out to his boat. And old Baldy, he got on his horse, mad, and cleared out to the ford. I don't know, when they got to their tent, whether they went on with that particular dissension, or whether they'd forgot all about it and had to start up a new one to keep em from feelin' lost. Oh, they'd contracted the habit of disagreement, I suppose, same as a man gets to depend on having a quid of tobacco in his cheek. But while speaking to Edmund about his joshin', the eyes of both of them had given away the store they set by each other. End of chapter 7, part 1